Consumer Choice Radio. I am one half of your co-hosting duet, uh, David Clement. Uh, my colleague Yael is away this week, so I am joined for this first segment uh, by the fantastic Bill Verts. Uh, Bill, thank you very much for coming back on Consumer Choice Radio. Um, all right, so you have uh, some gripes for a very renowned Canadian, uh, David Suzuki, noted environmentalist. I think I would call him environmentalist royalty here in Canada. Um, I am not a fan myself, which we will get into. But, um, yeah, what is uh, what is David Suzuki up to these days, and why is that grinding your gears? So I was not aware of David Suzuki because I don't cover that much Canadian politics, but uh, he seems to me uh, something that uh, that we encounter quite a bit in Europe. Um, I think if I had a Canadian dollar for every time David Suzuki is wrong about something, I would have a Bitcoin by now. Uh, he recently published on the site of his foundation new information on pesticides, what Canada must do on uh, pesticides. And here's the problem with what they released. Uh, I think we can also, uh, if we want to, to somewhat promote it for listeners who are interested to see it in the description um, of the episode. Um, he writes about uh, the risks of Parkinson's. And here's the problem with some of these conspiracy theories when it comes about agriculture, is that they always sprinkle in a grain of truth and then they lump in a bunch of other things that have nothing to do with it. So um, the risks associated with some pesticides, some herbicides that are used and Parkinson's um, are being explored. Uh, we have had uh, some information about this in the early 2000s. Uh, now, since 2018, there have been more comprehensive studies. And now agencies such as the European Food Safety Agency, um, Authority, sorry, um, are, are exploring this in the field with real-life experiments. So we are still sort of on the early stages of finding out the link um, the studies in the 2000s, for instance, said that there could be a multitude of reasons why this happens. But it's nothing we should exclude. And, and if, by the way, if there are synthetic pesticides uh, used in the field that, that, that increase your risk of uh, um, getting Parkinson's as a farmer, then we should do something about it. That is absolutely clear. So what they do here is essentially lump in that information. They've already concluded that it causes Parkinson's. And what they do is they name a bunch of other uh, chemicals that they had a problem with previously that they, knew, that they now also uh, want banned. And I think that's a, that's a, that's, that's, that's a problem um, with these type of people is because they have pre they have pre-made conclusions about the things they want banned in modern agriculture. They want to return to a system that is very old school, the way that our ancestors did farming, and they'll take any reason to get there. Um, and so I think uh, consumers should be careful with consuming this, this type of information. Uh, the foundation spreads uh, uh, resources around to, to amplify their message. Uh, and Canadians, I think, are smarter uh, than that than to, to fall immediately for, for some of the messaging of these nonprofits. Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, it's. It's always curious with uh, with Mr. Suzuki because he is a Malthusian in every sense. Uh, he's also strangely anti-immigrant, um, which for a country like Canada is a, is a curious position, given the fact that we we are all technically immigrants at some point. Um, well, that, that would actually be interesting to me because, given his last name, would he or other people in his family not be have 
immigrants themselves at one point to Canada? Oh, of course, yeah. I mean, he's he would be very much like myself. I actually don't know if he was he was born here, but he's probably maybe first generation Canadian, and if not second, which would be a stretch. So he'd be in the same boat as me in, in terms of being relatively new um, over the course of this country's history, um, and yeah, it's just strange. When, when I say Malthusian, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll throw this to you. Uh, explain to our listeners what I mean by that, Malthusian, and, and kind of where we see this argument creep in time and time again. So the Malthusians are of the opinion that there's too many people on the planet, essentially. They look at the news articles about 8 billion people, and they see in that a carbon dioxide emissions um, problem. More people, more emissions is essentially... Uh, the reason, um, it seems to me that many environmentalists are not Malthusians because as far as I can tell, they are still having children um, and uh, they, they, they seem to be promoting that somewhat. Uh, but, uh, but there are people who believe that we should reduce the population. And I think Paul Ehrlich uh, is of the opinion that maybe there should be 500 million people on the planet or something. And I'm not exactly sure who he wants to get rid of to achieve that. Uh, but, but ultimately, that is the argument, which is flawed, by the way. Um, con- countries, as they uh, as they improve on GDP, as they get richer, and while simultaneously adding more people, don't necessarily increase um, the per capita emissions of, of CO two, and actually not even the total amount of CO two. Um, as countries develop, they develop more systems to be more uh, to be less polluting, to be more environmentally sustainable, and as, and if people have the capital to invest in that, it gets better. So ultimately, the correlation is not more people worse environment it's um more people with resources with capital with education um that means that you reduce your environmental impact so the malthusians have been spectacularly wrong they've predicted famines uh in the past that uh, never really occurred and usually when famines occur they happen to be uh the result of very bad central planning and agriculture and so um so it's it's a recurring argument they continue to be wrong and um yeah, I guess we'll have to deal with it. They, they don't go away. That, that sort of argument just doesn't seem to be going away. No, but it should because they're just wrong at every point in history. Yeah, it's not a factor of more people equals more pollution. It, it's also more people equals more solutions, um, which is an important distinction because, I mean, there's a very good story of, I forget what book I was reading, but it's the beginning and it opens up with this very apocalyptic description of what the streets look like and people getting sick from the water and it's just on the cusp of the invention of the automobile um, which then rapidly cleaned cities because you didn't have horses and manure and it increased um, wealth and the investment in water treatment and all of that and um, those type of solutions come across rather frequently and we just kind of get used to the fact that life is the way it is now but it wasn't always that way um it's have you have you taken a look at any of the other uh half truths or or misinformation that mr suzuki um likes to talk about yeah i mean so one of his eternal enemies seems to be glyphosate and that that is a conversation that he probably copy pastes pretty much from uh europe um can, Canadians uh, have not 
had to deal with the same problems of affordability and availability of food products than Europeans. And that is most notably because Canada hasn't followed the European example. However, what he tries to do uh, is convince policymakers in Canada to follow the exact same blueprint. So what we have in Europe right now is a a farm-to-fork strategy which seeks to reduce farmland and cut down on uh, synthetic crop protection uh, tools, uh, which allows farmers to produce food more effectively. Now, some countries in Europe could maybe look at being able to afford a more nostalgic view of agriculture. If you are somebody who shops at a specific organic food shop and you have the resources to afford some of those products, good for you. That's your choice. What I have issue with is trying to apply a precautionary system which essentially bans anything new that we do in agriculture and it allows us to be more efficient and then have the bill be footed by those low-income households that are already struggling right now, Um, which is now why the farm-to-fork strategy in Europe is being criticized left and right and that some member states in the EU are saying maybe this is not a good idea and now trying to make the argument from scratch about why we started in Europe the farm-to-fork strategy in the first place and apply that to Canada. Uh, sorry, we already went through it and it doesn't seem to be working. Yeah, we had another guest on uh, previously and he referred to it as farm to another F word, which I am not allowed to say on, on the radio. Um, so the idea that that there are increased efficiencies in agriculture. I mean, a lot of people, more so now than ever, their only exposure to agriculture is going to the grocery store. Give our listeners a a bit of a peek as to how efficiency has increased over time based on some of the modern uh, elements of agriculture that you write about. So recently for The Hill, I wrote a piece about the comparisons between European and American agriculture. And while American agriculture has improved significantly in efficiency, more than 150% uh, soon uh, since the 1960s, European agriculture is rather stagnant. And that has to do um, with sort of the innovation that the US allows versus what Europe allows in terms of agricultural efficiency. However, overall, if we look at the, you know, the global perspective, we are now at a point where we have reached peak agricultural land. That means we make more food uh, with less resources, which is great, not just from a perspective of how many people, quote unquote, have to work on the farms and how they have to work on the farms, but also we need to cut down less trees. We can allow wildlife to get back, less, for, like, less cutting down of forests. If you fly over Europe... Uh, If you fly over France or Germany and you hear uh, the politicians who talk about the Amazon forest in Brazil, but then you look down from your plane on on France and Germany, what you don't see is a lot of forestry because, well, those countries have practiced agriculture in such a fashion that most of it is, is, you know, just uh, just, uh, for use use for farmland. Uh, And we will soon get to a point where our farms don't have to be very large anymore because we have the technology uh, with selective breeding, with uh, plant breeding technologies that allow us to be a lot more efficient. And that's great. I mean, just look at the possibility that we have with modern technology. Japan just allowed on the market a tomato that reduces your blood pressure. Now, granted, that is an expensive tomato right now and probably not a perfect substitute for those suffering from higher blood pressure just yet. 
But just the fact that it has market access and that those things, like many other things on the on, 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 on the free market, happen to get cheaper as we go along and as more people use it, it's just amazing. I mean, not just is our food healthier, uh, it is actually also more sustainable. And that sustainability is reached with efficiency. Yeah, it's always fun talking to folks on the other side here because the idea is more people, more food, more clear-cutting of land to grow things, um, which is not the case. You've, you've highlighted it here. We've had other guests on the program. We've talked about it as well. Um, and, yeah, I mean, just incredible leaps in innovation where the yield for particular crops increases exponentially over time. We use less land. We're able to kind of consolidate that in a much better fashion. What do you think the – we have about uh, two minutes here. What do you think the long-term – ramifications of something like farm to fork uh, policies are like what happens if you go the whole way when you go the whole way you make yourself more dependent on food imports from other countries for you know we've seen it on the energy scale that we can't necessarily rely on more authoritarian uh, regimes uh, the eu already relies quite considerably for many food imports uh, from turkey and you know there's elections in in june in turkey and nobody knows exactly how that's uh, going to go so you increase your dependencies but ultimately on the global scale i guess the europeans will have to pay the price for the um the illumination of other countries to understand why things such as farm to fork are not a good idea so what we do have is the blueprint for what goes wrong when you do things like that so ultimately for canadian policymakers looking over to europe to understand what to do um i see a lot of things not to do and and i think that should be the wake-up call for many of the um, people who believe the environmentalist uh, many of the environmentalist messaging um on, on agriculture is that it's just the wrong way. Well, thank you, Bill, for coming back on the program. And uh, for listeners, stay tuned. Um, after the break, we will be joined by Professor Dan Malik, um, professor at Brock University, talking about all things alcohol, ironically also talking about risks and the data behind uh, alcohol consumption and some of the, uh, the boogeyman headlines that we see. Um, no, they perfectly correlate with these environmentalists, but there is uh, a little too much familiarity, so stay tuned for that on Consumer Choice Radio. back on Consumer Choice Radio. Um, I have the pleasure of, of interviewing our next guest. He is a medical historian specializing in alcohol and drug uh, policy, uh, a professor at Brock University. Dan Malik, thank you very much for joining us on Consumer Choice Radio. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so I guess one thing, obviously in the news, has been uh, the CCSA report stating that um, no more than than two drinks is considered per week is considered uh, low risk. Um, uh, I'll just 
pitch it to you here. What is what is the summary of the report? Obviously, you're you're someone who who's read it. Um, what is the summary of of the report and the findings from the CCSA? Sure. So the 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 report claims that uh, scan it right here. Zero drinks per week has benefits. One to two standard drinks per week is you will likely avoid alcohol-related consequences. Uh, the language is really important here. I mean, they uh -huh. they filtered it through um, a bunch of uh, people who are all about you know communication. Uh, three to six standard drinks per week. Your risk of developing several different types of cancer increases. And then seven or more standard drinks per week. Your risk of heart disease and stroke increases. Each additional standard drink radically increases the risk of those alcohol-related consequences. So that's the the actual language from their little infographic they provide. And as the it, it shows a little graphic of increased alcohol consumption. And as it gets higher, it gets into blood red mm -hmm. coloring, right? So Very green scary. is zero. But after that, yeah, you get um, And so, I mean, I've read your piece in the Globe and Mail, but what is what is your take on their findings? Um, I have, uh, well, the, the short answer is I find it really problematic. I find the recommendations problematic. Um, the very narrow scope of the research that they're using is also a problem. I mean, they say that they use 6,000 studies, but they filtered out most and they use 16. A few of them are what are called meta-analyses. Meta so those people have looked at other studies and kind of made their own selection about which which studies they want to use. So there's a lot of kind of filtering, other people's filtering, right, that's going on here. Um, and that's just like anything, like the, the more you filter, the less you get in something. Um, and then their outcomes, there's there's two, I think two <clears throat> main problems, well, there's multi multiple problems, but I'll, I'll talk about two to start with. One is that narrowness, right? Is that like a lot of the studies look at one illness category, which is fine, like that, be focused. And then that's the only study that they use to talk about, say, something like liver cirrhosis, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and the other one is that the way they present the data um, on harm is what's called relative harm or relative risk. It's relative risk, right? And relative risk means relative to someone who doesn't drink, right? Um, so, uh, which sounds good. But then if you say, for example, my favorite one, because it's so egregious, is liver cirrhosis, right? <clears throat> liver cirrhosis is caused by drinking a lot of alcohol, and it's a hit to your liver. Your liver can't process it, and over time, it damages your liver. It damages it that in a, a repairable way first, but eventually when it gets to the cirrhosis level, it can't be. So it's a really dire disease. If you have liver, liver cirrhosis, you're in trouble, right? But they look at the research on liver cirrhosis and see like the amount that is needed to hammer your liver to the point where you're going to get cirrhosis. And then they basically create, um, they, they sort of mathematically reduce that. So say uh, this, these aren't the numbers, but say you have a hundred or a thousand percent increase at 35 drinks a week, which they show 35 drinks a week, they would then reduce that like on a linear way so that, you know, 21 drinks a week is uh, proportionate lower than that and, and so on. So that they're arguing, they're, they're suggesting that one drink a week could cause you liver cirrhosis. And the odds of that happening are so ridiculously low. But because they're comparing it to people who don't drink, 
Well, of course, someone who doesn't drink is not going to have any, has very low likelihood of getting cirrhosis, right? Someone who drinks a lot has a high likelihood. Someone who drinks moderately has almost no likelihood, but they're making it look like there's a high likelihood. I'm not, not quite sure if I'm explaining. No, yeah, that makes that makes sense. It's essentially graphing it as if it's perfectly yes. linear yeah. and causal, where yes. the increase, um, it almost seems like it ignores the fact that there is a point where your liver yeah. has difficulty metabolizing alcohol. It's, a, yeah. it's as if that difficulty metabolizing exists consistently throughout the graph, which is, of course, not true. And we know that that's not true because there are there is a level of alcohol which you can can consume and still operate a motor vehicle. That law exists because it operates on a spectrum. Yeah. And and also because, I mean, if our liver were that fragile, we uh, we as a species would not have survived. Like our liver's job is to filter <laughs> poisons, right? So if one drink a week, <laughs> if your liver can't handle that, the liver has a problem. And some people, that's the case, right? Like there are genetic you know, defects mm-hmm. or that cause that. And that's, that's, that's why I never say it will never cause it. But to suggest that people have this risk because people who drink a lot do have a risk you and then they extrapolate that the less the less you drink the less risk you have but there's still a risk it's just not it's just not biologically realistic right Mm -hmm. and 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 this kind of this kind of reasoning or lack of reasoning i think is kind of found fundamental or foundational to the angle that these researches have been taking on alcohol as a harmful substance so those are the two big ones for me there's mm-hmm. others yeah i mean one of the other criticisms i've seen is that it's only focused on risk there's no cost benefit analysis Absolutely. Um, and that there are some functional benefits to alcohol consumption i know others in your field have have published on this um would you mind elaborating on when i say that there are functional benefits to alcohol what exactly that means Sure. Yeah. Like this is one thing that fascinates me. And because I'm a historian, I've studied the temperance movement and seen sort of the rhetoric of fear-based harm. There's no useful benefit to alcohol whatsoever. And if we think about now, I recognize some people don't drink. That's fine. Some people don't drink because they have problems with it or they have family history or cultural, whatever. And that's, I'm not encouraging people to drink, but for a lot of people, uh, moderate alcohol consumption is very functional. The, the taking the edge off at the end of the week, getting together with friends to, you know, imagine getting together with your coworkers and kind of processing work. Like, oh man, like the boss was really on my case this week and talking about that, like just helping to ease some of that stress in our lives and stress and anxiety and fear uh, are, do have negative health benefits. They're verifiable. They've been, they've been um, researched a lot. Um, so to suggest that this substance that can help people relax and can bring people together, it can be a reason to go together. Hey, let's go for a drink and talk about this kind of thing. It's just, it completely misses a big part of our life. Not to mention, there's a lot of new research um, on the benefits of social connectedness. And I use this phrase a lot uh, and some people misunderstand it, but um, the researchers who looked at social connectedness say that having good, strong social connections with your neighborhood, with your family or whatever, is more protective of your health even than quitting smoking. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying people shouldn't quit smoking. 
or that smoking, there's no problem with smoking. What I'm saying is that if quitting smoking has a lot of health benefit, then imagine something that's even better than that. Like, but but what the the alcohol researchers are ignoring is the social world in which we exist mm-hmm. and how alcohol can be part of that in a very positive and constructive and supportive way. And I don't mean self-medicating, although maybe no. some people do that. Um, but in fact, bringing people together, even if someone has a drink on their own at the end of the day, just one drink, it's not, not it, it might be what they need to relax, right? And that's that can be okay, you know, yeah. but just, it's just harmful, misses so much. Yeah, and I think you, I think the statement, it can be okay, is a really important one in the context of like, what, what does this risk actually entail? Um, and I know there's a professor at Simon Fraser who's written a piece on this and he went over some of the research and um, that something between seven and 14 drinks per week can lower your overall life expectancy by about six months on average. And I think for a lot of people who drink responsibly, but are well beyond the two drinks per week guideline, they would look at that and go, Oh, well, that's a no brainer. I mean, why like that's a, that doesn't bother me at all. That is a risk that is worth, more than worth taking um i mean you overlay that with the fact that um driving on the qew or the 401 at any given moment which we mostly do is a harrowing feat um especially in winter weather and yet we all do it we take those risks because they're worth it it's how it it almost seems like the we have to approach this from how do we eliminate risk rather than how do we educate about risk yeah, no, absolutely. And and yeah, that's a great piece in the in the conversation. I encourage everyone to read it. This is someone who researches social connectedness. And so he makes some wonderful connections with risk. I emailed him yesterday to congratulate him on this great piece. I, I don't know him, but uh, I was happy to see that because I've been talking about that kind of thing as well. But he did a much better job, I think. Um, but uh, yeah, so so I mean, one of the things the CCSA did um, and then they modified it, like because they released this report in August for pub- public consultation, basically to see how does it fly, how do we tweak our message, not whether like they're not testing the science in a public form, they're not crowdsourcing truth, right? <laughs> but um, mm. was um, they use things, and this was really weird to me. So I talked to some epidemiology colleagues who didn't quite understand the use of this. They used something called Y Y L L, which is years of life lost per 1000 lives right and so their big stat is that and they and and in their final report they actually have a table linking years of life lost to all of these different conditions based upon how much you drink and they argued that you have under the previous guidelines men would experience 755 years of life loss per thousand lives. And that sounds scary until you realize what that means is about three quarters of a year of your life. You might live three quarters of a year less, like short, mm-hmm. like you said, 50, you know, five, yeah. six months, eight months, nine months. Right. Um, and then, and the, the other interesting thing about this is that it's kind of assumes we'll otherwise never die. <laughs> Right. So years of life loss doesn't mean if you don't drink, you'll live forever. It just means, you know, you might not live to 89, you might live to 88 and three months. Right. And so, mm-hmm. and then that's what you say. It's like that trade-off of risk. Like we're still going to, um, uh, we're still going to die of something. And that, and the other stat they use, I don't know if it's in the final report, but they're kind of floating this out and they've used this before is one in 100 deaths 
can be attributed to alcohol. And I don't know if that's, I don't think that's valid, I, you know, but what it's suggesting again is that those other 99 are not deaths, but they are, right? You're going to die of something. So mm-hmm. if 99 out of 100 deaths, if if you have 99 of 100 chances of not dying from alcohol, do you know what I mean? Like it's, yeah. it's this assumption that if you say one in 100 deaths is caused by alcohol, then you're going to um, if you get rid of alcohol, you're not going to die. No, you're still going to die. That's a hundred percent likelihood. Uh, you can't know, avoid yeah. it. It just might be from something else. And then other people have joked to me saying, "Yeah, and how miserable will your life be if you can't have a drink?" Right? Which what? And it brings me back to like the middle of the pandemic and the talk about closing liquor stores. And not that I'm the biggest fan of the premier in Quebec. Um, but I thought that it was particularly mature of him to say, no, we're not going to close the SAQ because some people are going to want to have a glass of wine at the end of the night. And there's nothing wrong with that. And maybe that helps people relax and deal with the craziness that's going on in the world. Um, and we all kind of lived through that lack of social bonding and being yeah. disconnected and attempting to do things virtually that took a huge impact and you would think that now of all times on the heels of that uh, that that that's that importance of social connection which you mentioned that bonding being social again because it's much safer now than it once was um would play some sort of role in any conversation about alcohol but um for some reason it seems that it hasn't um we are about to go to break and i want i'll just prime our listeners i want to talk about some maybe hypocrisy or disparity in how we treat different substances when we return so stay tuned on consumer choice radio back on Consumer Choice Radio. I am joined by Professor Dan Malik, um, talking all things alcohol, the CCSA's new report that uh, you are likely a problematic drinker uh, if you have more than two per week, um, and, and some of the science and data behind it or lack thereof. But I wanted to pick your brain, um, because we as a country, generally speaking, have had a very progressive approach to harm reduction. Um, that seems certainly true the further west you go. If you end up in BC, we talk about safe injection sites and trying to ensure that addicts don't die and safe safe supply and testing and all of those things. While at the same time, really harboring like a temperance prohibition style approach to alcohol. Do you, is my assessment accurate? Is there some hypocrisy there? And if so, why? Yeah, there's definitely some kind of cognitive dissonance, right? Um, uh, probably the same thing as hypocrisy in that um, we, we've seen the danger of prohibition of drugs. We've seen the negative effects. I mean, harm reduction is all about not about stopping people from uh, taking drugs, but about reducing the harms associated with the prohibited drugs, right? Um, people mm-hmm. using needles, people not being able to speak to their doctor about it, you know, all of that stuff. Like mm-hmm. it's a lot of stuff, and I'm not minimizing it by any means. 
Whereas alcohol, because the um, you know prohibition was a hundred years ago, and uh, people sort of look at it as this time of speakeasies and and flappers and all of that stuff, but there was a lot of problems with that, like people drinking rubbing alcohol and people drinking what's called canned heat, like that gelled alcohol you use for mm-hmm. um, for camping and stuff like that. Um, they seem to forget that there was harm in that, and they seem to forget that prohibition causes harm. Now the CCSA claims it's not advocating prohibition but one of the things that's happening and i've seen this happen i've talked to people i've talked to alcoholics who do not like this report because of the stigma it creates because they understand stigma Mm -hmm. around alcohol and it's creating the stigma where if you're known to be drinking seven drinks a week you're clearly an irresponsible person because you're damaging your health and you're increasing your risk and all of this stuff right so that and i'm putting that in quotes because i don't believe that but Mm -hmm. But that's that's where stigma comes from. It's about reframing our relationship with alcohol to something that is only problematic. And so if you're a drinker, you're clearly doing something irresponsible. And that's stigma. That's building stigma. And it's 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 great strategy if you're if you're temperance oriented because you're trying to scare people into mm-hmm. behaving the way you want them to behave. But it's probably not the healthiest um, approach if you're looking at people being healthy the problem is the ccsa a lot of their other stuff on say when they gave um they did a policy brief to the cannabis um commission as they were coming up with the best way to deal with uh legalization and a lot of their stuff was very much came from this what i call a problem framework which is you put something you see something as a problem and all you're doing is trying to limit the the knock-on problems as well right so they Mm -hmm. talked they only talked about children smoking cannabis and they talked about mental illness and cannabis and all of these things that have some connection but not as necessary children smoking cannabis can be a problem but have some connection but not as dire or or strongly strong connection as they suggest and then they're saying you know you have to be as restrictive as possible and i'll admit that Mm -hmm. i advocated for a model that followed the liquor control model because as someone who studied liquor control after prohibition um i saw that that was the way the government managed the opposition like introduced liquor reintroduced liquor as a legal substance yeah i managing the opposition by trying to eliminate all of the things that would cause the opposition to it to go oh look see we said this was going to happen it wasn't about to make it politically viable yeah to make it politically viable and and reduce the opposition and that's yeah anyway so so we've gone into camps a bit but the 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 shorter answer no 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 no. i mean i mean that's a very good point i i want to ask you a question because it strikes me as as rather strange when government-funded organizations obviously get taxpayer money and then lobby the government for policy change because in some sense it feels like the government paying to lobby itself um and it, it kind of I, I think it was dr sylvain chaubois out, yeah. out at dalhousie was like well why have health canada then like, yeah yeah, if, yeah if we're going to pay for research from organizations who have a clear i mean i think he said imagine we paid PETA to give us a report on meat consumption what's the yeah. what's the conclusion going to be well we all know what it's going to be because we know what they believe yeah um yeah. do you common um is this common is is there is it maybe as nefarious as i think it is um are there some ethical questions there or is this is this not a nothing burger and something we shouldn't we should leave 
No, I think that there's that is a valid criticism, and I think uh, Sylvain Charlebois, Charlebois has has some really good points there. I have on my wall something I was given in grade 11 high, uh, history class that I use all the time, and it says, an idea becomes a movement, a movement becomes an organization, an organization becomes an institution, and therein lies the death of the idea, right? It's how we, the more you create this bureaucracy, and we were talking about like the, the church and other things, right, in, in school, but the more you make someone's job and work about maintaining that institution, the less they're focused on their their goals right so and that's not talking about health canada what health canada does because health canada is a government agency that funds research they provide mm -hmm. money to researchers who have cred and they expect research that is balanced and can inform policy right and what they did here was they they gave money to the ccsa to update these guidelines but the ccsa went way beyond what they were um, mandated mm -hmm. to do and there's been a lot of international opposition or, and and voices against what the ccsa has done because they said we're updating the guidelines but the, the guidelines from 2011 had nothing about policy change about labeling about limiting access to mm -hmm. alcohol all of those sort of pre prohibitionist oriented um things so so i don't think it's it's not a nothing burger. It's um, definitely a valid concern. And I'm pretty sure that within Health Canada, there are concerns about this report as well, because they see the overreach. They're not mm -hmm. stupid. There was no, um, you know, peer review on this report. People have emailed me and said, was there a peer review on this? I said, no, it's a report. It's not a an mm -hmm. academic journal article, right? But, mm -hmm. and, and they trust the integrity of the organization to do their own kind of reviewing. But, and I think what's happened is um, the CCSA has kind of, maybe shot itself in the foot a bit because their credibility yeah. is at stake here. And unfortunately, it's also the credibility of other health um, information organizations that might not ever engage mm -hmm. in this sort of ideological approach to advice giving. Yeah, I mean, it's funny you say that I woke up to, um, I'm on a mailing list from an economist in the US, Emily Oster, um, who does predominantly parent uh, data and studies breaking down myths and facts and things like that. I'm a new parent, so I find all of that very interesting. But even she dug into the CCSA's report, and her conclusion was, "Hmm, not so fast." Yeah. Um, and I mean, she's not Canadian, doesn't do business in Canada, just completely on the outside. And we're starting to see other um, news outlets um, discredit the report and the organization. On the consumer side, I think part of part of my concern is that the the guidelines are so divorced from reality that they become a joke in a sense yeah. where yeah. the guidelines that are supposed to exist to guide healthy living are now yeah. so low that nobody really cares. They they don't. I, there was a video. I think it was City News, and they interviewed a guy, a rather hilarious guy, and it went viral on Twitter. And he was like, two beers? Come on! Yeah, you're going to tell me I can't have more than two beers at home?" Um, yeah. Do you think that that could be a negative externality here, where the, the 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 guidelines are so low that people just stop taking the guidelines in their totality seriously? Yeah, I think there's a really big uh, risk of that, and. Uh, and I'm not alone in this. I mean, there are international standards on giving sort of advice to the public. I mean, one of the things that they talk about is, you know, having an informed populace know what they're 
doing. But then the the the, the guidelines themselves are ridiculous, and the way they present evidence is really um, impenetrable. Like I'm I'm a scholar. This is kind of my job, and I'm reading it, going, oh, I have no idea what's going on. And I talk to epidemiologists to look at it and go, uh, don't. I don't recognize the way they're using that as maybe it's valid in their field, right? So there's a lot of kind of muddiness to it. Um, but then as well, there are internet, like I said, there's international standards on providing information. So for example, you don't provide um, relative risk information. You provide um, actual risk, right? So this whole percentage likelihood of increasing, it doesn't make sense to people. And, and what, and the concern from these different international researchers and commentators, and they're not necessarily commenting on the CCSA's report, but just in general on how this is done, is that when you do that, you, you erode, um, um, respect or uh, the reputation of these organizations. So just as you said, I can see people going, well, I mean, this recommendation is ridiculous. Why am I even going to listen to the 10 to 15 drinks a week? Mm -hmm. Right. And that can yeah. have a lot. Of yeah. Work. They throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah. yeah they throw the baby out with the bathwater and, and just disregard the the concept of guidelines yeah. um, it's interesting you bring up the the risk side of things because some have pointed out and i think you're included right if if let's say 14 drinks a week the, the figure of increases your risk of a particular cancer by 100 percent that's not necessarily useful information without the add-on of going from 0 0.001 to 0 0.002 yeah, yeah, because that actually allows for people to make informed decisions, and we see these figures come out um, uh, quite frequently in re in response to the report. Um, is, is do you think that that type of communication would be better for consumers and people who are wanting to make healthier decisions? I think so. Um, that I think the challenge, though, is that um, so so I think so. But the problem with things like cancer, I mean, there's lots of problems with cancer, and I'm like many people have had cancer. Uh, um, pe people in my life die of cancer, um, so it's I don't take it un seriously. Is that people have a lot of different risk factors? There's a lot of things. Breast cancer is one of those ones that there's a ton of risk factors, and it's the highest um, incidence cancer that they list. Um, so to say you can get cancer from you can get this or that cancer from drinking. Um, doesn't really say anything because there's a lot of other things that you might, that you might not, you might have a very low risk. You can't just say a woman has X um, percentage chance of getting cancer because some women have more or breast cancer. Some women have more, some mm -hmm. women have less it's different physiological um, genetic, all of these different factors come into it. Right. Um, so just, so yes, the relative risk thing is, is a big issue. If you have a uh, 0.5% chance of getting something and that increases to by a hundred percent, then you have 1% chance, right? Like that's, that's a hundred percent increase. It's kind of a dodge that pharmaceutical companies use sometimes saying this drug will reduce this condition by, you know, 50% when you might not have a high likelihood of getting it. And it's, it's kind of, it's mm -hmm. seen as discreditable in that field, but apparently in this field is absolutely fine, but it's not, like, as I said, the international standards generally recommend don't use relative risk. Um, and then, like I said, cancer and these other conditions actually have other factors that go into it besides alcohol. So to make a direct connection with alcohol, you're missing a lot. And the other thing about risk is that 
alcohol is not consumed in a vacuum. So if you're looking at a study that covers people over the last 40 years, you're talking about people who are drinking most likely in bars or restaurants where there was smoking and where they were eating and and all that stuff that is not considered in that, right? So it's just a lot of distortion for for a specific end. And and what they're saying is that what they're saying is not recognizing the nuances of it. Right at the end of their report, they have some what are called uh, um, limitations to their study, which most good researchers do. And if you read those limitations first, you would just throw out the study because it basically says there's so many ways that this is not accurate. And yet they're not afraid to make these big, bold recommendations and guidelines. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, I think we'll we'll leave it at that. Um, Professor, it has been a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you for enlightening not only myself and our listeners. Um, this is certainly a hot topic that we're going to keep following and uh, hopefully have you back on the program to see how this develops. My pleasure. I'm happy to talk about it. Thanks for having me. Thank you.